0: Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Matthew 12, verses 22-37, to and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Matthew. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Matthew, chapter 12, verses 22-37. to Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. This passage of scripture contains things hard to be understood. The sin against the Holy Spirit in particular has never been fully explained by the most learned theologians. It is not difficult to show from Scripture what the sin is not. It is difficult to show clearly what it is. We must not be surprised. The Bible would not be the book of God if it had not deep places here and there where man has no line to fathom. Let us rather thank God that there are lessons of wisdom to be gathered, even out of these verses, which the unlearned may easily understand. Let us gather from them, in the first place, that there is nothing too blasphemous for hardened and prejudiced men to say against Christ. Our Lord casts out a devil, and at once the Pharisees declare that he does it by the prince of devils. This was an absurd charge. Our Lord shows that it was unreasonable to suppose that the devil would help to pull down his own kingdom, and Satan casts out Satan. But there is nothing too absurd and unreasonable for men to say when they are thoroughly set against Christ. The Pharisees are not the only people who have lost sight of logic, good sense, and temper when they have attacked the gospel of Christ. Strange as this charge may sound, it is one that has often been made against the servants of God. Their enemies have been obliged to confess that they are doing a work and producing a good effect in the world. The results of Christian labor stare them in the face. They cannot deny them. What then shall they say? They say the very thing that the Pharisees said of our Lord. He is the devil. The early heretics used language of this kind about Athanasius. The Roman Catholics spread reports of this sort about Martin Luther. Such things will be said as long as the world stands. We must never be surprised to hear of dreadful charges being made against the best of men Without cause, if they call the master of the house Belzebub, how much more so they call them of his household? It is an old device. When the Christian's arguments cannot be answered and the Christian's works cannot be denied, the last resource of the wicked is to try and blacken the Christian's character. If this be our lot, let us bear it patiently. Having Christ in a good conscience, we may be content. False charges will not keep us out of heaven. Our character will be cleared at the last day. In the second place, let us gather out of these verses the impossibility of neutrality in religion. He who is not with Christ is against him, and he who does not gather with him scatters. There are many people in every age of the church who need to have this lesson pressed upon them. They endeavor to steer a middle course in religion. They are not so bad as many sinners, but still they are not saints. They feel the truth of Christ's gospel when it is brought before them, but are afraid to confess what they feel. Because they have these feelings, they flatter themselves. They are not so bad as others. And yet they shrink from the standard of faith and practice which the Lord Jesus sets up. They are not boldly on Christ's side, and yet they are not openly against him. Our Lord warns all such that they are in a dangerous position. There are only two parties in religious matters. There are only two camps. There are only two sides. Are we with Christ and working in his cause? If not, we are against him. Are we doing good in the world? If not, we are doing harm. The principle here laid down is one which it concerns us all to remember. Let us settle it in our minds that we shall never have peace and do good to others unless we are thoroughgoing and decided in our Christianity. The way of Gamaliel and Erasmus never yet brought happiness and usefulness to anyone and never will. In the third place, let us gather from these verses the exceeding sinfulness of sins against knowledge. This is a practical conclusion which appears to flow naturally from our Lord's words about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Difficult as these words undoubtedly are, they seem fairly to prove that there are degrees in sin. Offenses arising from ignorance of the true mission of the Son of God will not be punished so heavily as offenses committed against the noontide light of the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. The brighter the light, the greater the guilt of him who rejects it. The clearer a man's knowledge of the nature of the gospel, the greater his sin if he wilfully refuses to repent and believe. The doctrine here taught is one that does not stand alone in Scripture. Paul says to the Hebrews, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 7 and Hebrews 10 verses 26 and 27. It is a doctrine of which we find mournful proofs in every quarter. The unconverted child of godly parents, the unconverted servants of godly families, and the unconverted members of evangelical congregations are the hardest people on earth to impress. They seem past feeling. The same fire which melts the wax hardens the clay. It is a doctrine, moreover, which receives dreadful confirmation from the histories of some of those whose last ends were eminently hopeless. Pharaoh, and Saul, and Ahab, and Judas Iscariot, and Julian, and Francis Spira, are fearful illustrations of our Lord's meaning. In each of these cases, there was a combination of clear knowledge and deliberate rejection of Christ. In each, there was light in the head, but hatred of truth in the heart. And the end of each seems to have been blackness of darkness forever. May God give us a will to use our knowledge Whether it be little or great, may we beware of neglecting our opportunities and leaving our privileges unimproved. Have we light? Then let us live fully up to our light. Do we know the truth? Then let us walk in the truth. This is the best safeguard against the unpardonable sin. In the last place, Let us gather from these verses the immense importance of carefulness about our daily words. Our Lord tells us that every idle word that men may speak, they will give account for in the day of judgment. And he adds, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There are few of our Lord's sayings which are so heart-searching as this. There is nothing, perhaps, to which most men pay less attention than their words. They go through their daily work, speaking and talking, without thought or reflection, and seem to imagine that if they do what is right, it matters little what they say. But is it so? Are our words so utterly trifling and unimportant? We dare not say so, with such a passage of scripture as this before our eyes. Our words are the evidence of the state of our hearts, as surely as the taste of the water is an evidence of the state of the spring. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The lips only utter what the mind conceives. Our words will form one subject of inquiry at the day of judgment. We will have to give account of our sayings as well as our doings. Truly, these are very solemn considerations. If there were no other text in the Bible, this passage ought to convince us that we are all guilty before God and need a righteousness better than our own, even the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3 verse 9. Let us be humble as we read this passage in the recollection of time past. How many idle, foolish, vain, light, frivolous, sinful, and unprofitable things we have all said. How many words we have used which, like thistledown, have flown far and wide and sown mischief in the hearts of others that will never die. How often, when we have met our friends, our conversation, to use an old saint's expression, has only made work for repentance. There is a deep truth in the remark of an old saint. A profane scoff or atheistical jest may stick in the minds of those who hear it. After the tongue that spoke it is dead. A word spoken is physically transient, but morally permanent. Death and life, says Solomon, are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18 verse 21. Let us be watchful as we read this passage about words when we look forward to our days yet to come. Let us resolve, by God's grace, to be more careful over our tongues and more particular about our use of them. Let us pray daily that our speech may be always with grace, Colossians 4, verse 6. Let us say every morning with David, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Psalm 39 verse 1. Let us cry with him to God for strength and say, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141 verse 3. Well indeed, might James say, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James 3 verse 2. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today. and May the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory.